In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I talk with Laura Roeder about her uncanny ability to power through roadblocks. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 451. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products, whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob, and today with Laura Roeder, I'm here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. On this show, we talk about building startups in an organic, sustainable fashion that allows you to build a better life for yourself. Every once in a while, we'll sit down with an experienced, knowledgeable founder who has overcome seemingly insurmountable odds, and we learn from that founder, and we learn from their experience of growing their startup, of facing the roadblocks, turning them into speed bumps. And today is no exception. I've been a longtime fan of Laura Roeder since she started Edgar several years ago. That's at meetedgar.com. It's social media management software. And Laura grew Edgar to seven figures of annual revenue within the first 12 months. And it was one of the fastest bootstrapped SaaS growth trajectories I had ever heard of. But in 2017, 2018, Facebook and Twitter, some of the underlying platforms that Edgar relies on, really started to pull some shenanigans with their APIs. And Edgar ran into some pretty intense turbulence. And we dig into that. I had not heard her talk about this experience on a podcast before. And frankly, I wanted to hear what it was like on the inside and and how that felt. And she talks about ups and downs of it uh, in a very honest, raw, and transparent way. And so I really appreciate that about the interview today. And then the other thing we dig into is she went and started another SaaS app, raised an angel round, and ran into some pretty major roadblocks with that early on. And it's fascinating to hear, you know, essentially a third-time founder realizing, looking around and realizing, wow, this may not work like my other companies did. This may not go as well as my prior startups. And you can hear her thought process and what it was like to experience that in today's interview. So with that, let's dive in. Laura, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, even though we're going to talk about some tough topics. So I'm, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I, I know. I mean, we were talking before we, we got on this on the call that um, just like entrepreneurship is such about bumps and bruises, right? It's about these, you know, sometimes it's a speed bump and sometimes it's a roadblock and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And you've, you've certainly had your share um, over the past few years. Yes, I have had speed bumps and roadblocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's tough. So I wanted to I wanted to start by talking a little bit about Edgar, which is, you know, frankly, a, a wildly successful app. I remember that when you launched, I believe you made it to seven figures within 12 months of launch. It was ridiculous, like in a great way. And I had, I don't know that I had ever seen a bootstrapped SaaS app hit that level of success that quickly. What do you uh, attribute much of that to? I mean, so much of it is just kind of like right, right place, right time, right brand. I mean, when we launched, we were really innovative in the market. Just social media scheduling tools had been created, but they were literally just like type your tweet in this tool and then hit send. And that was kind of all they did. So the innovations that we created with Meet Edgar, when we launched, it was, I think, just very noteworthy. Like, wow, this is a tool that can do a lot more than any of the other tools can. 
And so you had this, this amazing success early on and you, you say right place at the right time, but I remember you also had, had worked your ass off to build an audience in that space. Yeah. You had set yourself up <laughs> for success, right? You, you weren't just kind of blindly going in and, you know, and doing this. So I think there's, there's a little bit of nature and some nurture in that one where like, both, you know, two factors came in, multiple factors. But then, you know, I think the thing that, that I want to chat with you today about is over the years that you've been running Edgar, there have been just crazy API changes and, and partner changes, right? Facebook and Twitter, and I don't know if other APIs have changed as well, but I got the impression from the outside that that has to be tough on, on your business. You know, has it? And, and talk me through that. Yeah. So 2018 has been our toughest year at Meet Edgar because we got hit with a lot of changes at once. So, um, well, some of them were in 2017 as well. So the biggest one was Twitter not allowing repeating content. So a big angle of what we do differently at Edgar is we allow you to keep a library of your content that gets repurposed. And that's a big reason why a lot of people use Edgar. And then all of a sudden, Twitter came out with this rule that said, if you have the exact same tweet, if you send it out more than once, that is against our terms of service. And there was no nuance <laughs> to this rule. You know, if you send out something that says good morning and then you send out something else that just says good morning four years later, that's technically against their terms of service. So things like this are especially frustrating when you're a tool because, you know, obviously people aren't getting their accounts shut down for sending out good morning twice within 10 years, but as a tool, you have to make sure that you are in 100% compliance with, with the APIs and with the policies and the terms of service because we're putting our customers at risk if we're not following Twitter's terms, right? It would really suck for someone to sign up for Edgar. The tool is doing something knowingly against Twitter's terms and conditions. Well, now we've put our customer at risk for getting their account shut down, which there have been many tools out there that did that, especially for Instagram, there used to be a lot of tools that went against Instagram's terms and they all got shut down. <laughs> no big, no big surprise there. So, you know, we did talk about how do we want to handle this? Is there any way that we want to try to fudge this? And we're like, no, we can't, we can't put our customers' accounts at risk. So we are going to stop repeating content on Twitter. So that was the biggest one around the same time Facebook stopped the ability for third-party tools to post to Facebook personal profiles. So you can still post to Facebook pages and groups, but not personal profiles. And then we just got our access cut off to Facebook groups for a while, just from bad luck. All the social media tools are doing a lot more invitations and manual approvals and that kind of thing, as opposed to just an open API. And we just hit some bad luck where we got stuck in the approval queue, we they didn't have any problem with what we were doing or anything like that. We just got to the bottom of the list somehow, and it ended up being like two or three months where our customers couldn't post to their Facebook groups, where a lot of our competitors didn't have any downtime or had like a week of downtime for groups. Wow, that is br <laughs> that is brutal. What a tough yeah. space. I mean, so so take me to the, that moment where you find out, I mean, let's start with the, the Twitter stuff. Cause that I imagine was just like a punch in the stomach. When you read that, that moment where you read that, you know, the email or whatever it is from Twitter, the press release, like what were you thinking? So, you know, I was, I'm such an optimist. I actually didn't even realize how bad it would be because 
I was thinking, okay, well, the good part about this is that all the tools are in the same boat, right? So we're not going to be able to repeat content on Twitter, but no one else is either. So it's not like they have anywhere to go. You know what I mean? It's not like our customers can leave us and choose a different tool. So I'm like, this is, this is really frustrating, but maybe it won't be that bad. And I also understood, it did help that I understood why Twitter was doing this. Obviously why Twitter's doing this is to prevent spam, right? They don't want people setting up Twitter bot accounts, repeating the same message over and over. It's just frustrating that they did it in such a way where they made this just extremely broad stroke that in addition to eliminating spam is also eliminating just some really standard usage of, of the tool. Yeah, the collateral damage of, of the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters when they change their APIs or change policies is I, I don't think they fully understand what, what they're about to, to destroy. I mean, it, oftentimes they are doing it, I think, in a way to, to cut down on spam or for the better of their platform or the better of the internet. And I I think internally they do believe that, but mm. it's it's kind of like, you, you question, I mean, totally, maybe, maybe not, you know, are they just doing it to grab more market share? Is that, is that what you think for their clients? I, yeah. I mean, I think in this case, Twitter was, I, I do think that they were just trying to cut down on spam and they just didn't think of it much beyond that. And then that was, that was kind of it, you know? And I don't think they've given it much. I don't think they've given it much thought since it's like, it wasn't, it wasn't something that they announced very widely. So I find that most, um, small businesses still don't know about this, which makes it even more frustrating for us because it kind of makes it seem like we're the ones enforcing this rule because people have never even heard of this Twitter rule. They try to use our tool. We say, we can't, you can't use it that way on Twitter. And it can be a sort of frustrating experience for the end user. So, you know, you just talked about three kind of almost breakages, you know, you're, you're built on platforms and these platforms can make a change that then really can have a serious impact on your business. Of those three kind of I would say like semi-catastrophic events. Did you see like an increase in churn? Did you see a reduction in, in top line revenue? I mean, how did it impact your company? Yes, we, we saw just a certain percentage of our customer base. Here's what we discovered. So I thought, okay, well, when they make this announcement, some people are going to leave because some people are going to say, well, I used you guys for Twitter, repeating on Twitter, and I can't do that anymore. What I didn't anticipate was that a certain percentage of our customers were just like, this was the only thing I used you for. Like, I didn't realize that a percentage of our customers were like, I used you guys for repeating on Twitter. You don't do that anymore. I'm out. I'm not going to another tool. I'm just not going to use Twitter anymore. That's actually a big thing that we heard. They're like, there are other social platforms out there. Like, <laughs> this like doesn't go with my strategy. Maybe I'll post to Twitter manually every so often, but I'm, I'm out. And that, that was a surprise. The other funny thing about the nature of our tool is we didn't realize how many people... So I thought, like, we'll have the announcement, you know, it'll change, and then we'll see who leaves. So it's like the first month we had to make the change, people leave, and it feels like, okay, this, you know, you never want customers leaving, but this feels manageable. But what I didn't realize... So the nature of our tool, like I said, you have a library that it, at some point if you're only sending things once, obviously that library is going to run out similar to like the way 
buffer is. It's like a one-time queue. When you get to the bottom of the queue, it's gone. So for Twitter, our tool became that way. But the thing is, people load a lot of content into our tool. So people had sometimes content for like a month or three months or six months before their Twitter content ran out. So that churn was, I mean, the good part was we had an extra four months or whatever it was, obviously of revenue from them. But the bad part was it just like kept going, <laughs> you know, like we're like, okay, the people who don't like the Twitter changes left. And then every month more and more people would kind of figure it out because obviously people don't read every message that you send. People would just be like, uh, what happened? I'm not sending out content anymore on Twitter. Like, What's, is the tool broken? What's wrong? And we're like, oh no, you're not sending out content anymore on Twitter because you used up all your content. You need to create new content now. And they're like, well, that sucks. I'm leaving. It is such a big selling point of, of Edgar above other tools, right? As you said, like Buffer does tend to be just a, you create the content and you schedule it and you post it and such. But churn went up, which obviously means your, your growth either stalls or flatlines or you know, whatever that does. Declines, yeah. So for us, we had a decline in our user base and it ended up with these three changes together, we lost a significant amount of our customer base. Like maybe we lost a quarter or a third of our customer base. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> it was it was really it was really big. And I mean that's not I don't want to make it sound like it's only external things. Like we made mistakes. We could have, you know, responded faster and better. I mean, the positive thing is that it forced us to innovate. So one example of that is now we have a feature we call auto variations where you put in your blog post and we automatically pull five pull quotes from that post to serve as your status updates. So that's just one way to like paste in a URL and get five status updates to Twitter or all the other social networks. But we didn't have that ready when Twitter shut down. You know, we didn't introduce that till, I don't know, nine months later, something like that. So you know, you have to, you have to roll the times when these things happen, but yeah, it was a significant loss for us. We had to make some layoffs at our company, which we've never had to do before, but we did remain profitable and survived through, through the whole thing, which, which I'm really proud of. The interesting thing is I don't hear of many bootstrappers who, who have to do layoffs because it tends to be this very slow growth over time. You build up, you hire as you have revenue. And with SaaS, Unless unless you have uh, an odd event like this, almost like a black swan thing that comes and gets you, your your growth just kind of keeps going steady or whatever. So I think you're in a, a unique situation that that you had to to deal with. Had you ever had you ever had to lay people off before? No, I mean I've let people go, but I had never had to do layoffs before. And I'm very thankful that we had a really great team backing us up. So especially our head of finance, Tanya Crino. She was very, very cautious about seeing this coming because, like I said, we saw the initial wave, but then we kept having you know, more and more customer loss. So we knew, I mean, if you Google how to do layoffs, <laughs> the first thing you see is only do one round. Whatever, whatever happens, only do one round. And so Tanya and Sarah Park, who's our, our head of operations at the time and is now the president of the company, they were really looking at what what do we need to do so that we can only do one round and so we can offer some kind of severance. So we were, we were able to offer two months severance to every person who was laid off and, of course, also help them, you know, find other positions at companies that we're friends with and things like that. 
And another thing that was so fascinating from the layoffs is we have full financial transparency within our company. We don't share individual salaries, but we share everything else. So we do financial reviews with the whole company every month. Everyone can look through all of our expenses and income. So people saw the writing on the wall. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like these are obviously very intelligent people working at Meet Edgar. I mean, you can't say, hey, we might have layoffs soon, but like, don't worry, we'll let you know. That's just, you you can't really say that until it's a done deal. But people are smart. They see us losing customer base. They're like, okay, this is a bootstrap company, has to remain profitable. The only way that's going to happen is lowering expenses. So we found that while, of course, it is a terrible and heartbreaking and incredibly stressful thing to be laid off from a job, we also, we're able to maintain really positive relationships with everyone who was laid off and everyone understood that it was something that needed to happen for the company to survive. Which is a big deal. Like it shows that you handled it with, with care and thought and, you know, deliberate, I, I don't know, deliberate action. Like it's, it's impressive. It's easy to flub that, I think. It's easy to accidentally screw that up. Yeah, it is, especially because it's often something you you haven't done before, right? So yeah, we were able to do it in just one go. You know, we didn't have to do any more after that. And, and it was hard because the way that you do it in just one go is you have to make deeper cuts than you think you need to. You know, when you first look at this problem, obviously you're hoping to just let like one or two people go. And in between, the, like we had some people that were laid off and then some people, just because it was a tumultuous time at the company, some people ended up leaving on their own kind of before or after, just, you know, along with the tide. So I think we had like eight people that that left one way or the other, maybe like six layoffs and two people leaving or something like that. I mean, how, how big of a morale blow was that to the rest of the team? Do you feel like they recovered quickly or were they pretty devastated? It was, you know, it's interesting because I think it was kind of an emotional roller coaster for everyone because it's devastating. And at the same time, this means, oh, the company's going to make it. You know what I mean? Because it, they have these same numbers. They're like, oh, this is, this is the choice the company needs to make in order for, for me to still have a job and the company to still survive. So obviously it's always really hard when, when that happens, but we were really focused on rebuilding with a team that, that remained. Yeah. I think I've been at companies, either worked for them or, or had colleagues at companies who've, who've been laid off. And I think such a big piece of the reaction and the morale comes down to the trust of the leadership. And is like, do they trust the CEO? Like, do they trust you, Laura, when you're saying, you know, this is why, and this is what we've done, and now we're going to move forward and we're, we're going to survive, you know? Or do they think that you've somehow, I don't know, manufactured it or made it up or that, they're, they're, that you haven't cut deep enough or that you cut too deep or whatever? And that's when, like, this big kind of toxicity comes about. But if folks recovered, I mean, it's, it's definitely going to be an emotional roller coaster, but if they recovered, it shows that you had like a good relationship with your team. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, we were able to still have a few people in each department. So it didn't feel like, and I'm the only engineer now. Like this is, you know, this is not going to work out. It, I think it felt to people like, okay, I can see how the company can continue to survive and grow with, with the team we have left. Luckily, it wasn't like so dire that it felt ridiculous. And when was that in 2018? Yes, in early 2018, yes, that we made the layoffs. And then, and you were still acting CEO at that point? 
Yes. Although I, I was actually on maternity leave when the like, okay, now I'm remembering the timing. Yes. I guess my daughter had just been born when we actually like did the like actual cut. Like we had been doing the math and planning up to that. So I was actually technically on maternity leave when we had to do the, the layoffs. So I just, you know, hopped on and like wrote everyone personal emails because the actual conversation happened with their hiring manager anyway. There was only one person who was a leadership level that we had to lay off. So I had the conversation with them. So weirdly, I didn't do a lot of the actual conversations. Well, I mean, that's still baller for having a baby and like two days later <laughs> being involved. I mean, it's, it's tough when the timing works it's out that ideal. way. You know, yeah, not yeah. at all. It's going to have to be stressful. Did it take a toll on you, on you personally, like your psyche and such? It was a relief because it made it clear that the company was going to make it, you know? And I don't mean to say that disrespectfully to, you know, anyone who's listening, who, who was working on our team. Like it was, it was a very hard decision, but by the day that it actually happened, it was a relief to get it over with and get it done and be like, okay, now we can move forward. And so sometime after this, you decided to start another, another company called Ropig. When was that? Was that later? That was, well, that was probably mid 2018, I'm guessing. You know, I've never like put the timelines of these things side by side in this way. I I think they're sort of separate compartments in my head, but now that we're going to put them side by side, I'm like, that's, that sounds crazy because (laughs) a lot of tumultuous things happened all in the same year. So yeah. So Ropig launched in March 2018. Launched, meaning the website went live, product was live, people could use it. Launched, meaning the product like started taking customers. So we had actually been working on it for a, about a year prior to that. Okay, so you were doing both of these then. You were yeah. You were working yeah, working on both. And Ropig was alert management for dev teams, right? Is yes. that right? Yes, exactly. And, you know, obviously the punchline to jump to it is that you decided to shut it down pretty quickly after, after launching. Let's talk through that a bit. I know that you actually raised funds for this, which was that a first? Had you raised uh, an angel round before? That was a first. So I had never, I had never raised money before Ropeg. Okay. And how did you go about that? Like, did you have a network of people or did you have to go to Sand Hill Road and hit the angel groups? So we raised money in January of 2018 and my daughter was born in June of 2018. So I was, you know, visibly pregnant when we were raising money and I was like, I'm pregnant. I don't want to (laughs) travel. Like, I don't, I don't want to do it. So I decided like, I'm going to get this done my way, you know, by this point, because I've been an entrepreneur for I guess like 11 or 12 years now. So I've built up a pretty strong network. So I felt pretty confident that I could raise a small round with my own network. So I'm like, I'm not going to travel. I'm not going to go to San Francisco. I am just going to ask people that I know if they would like to invest in my company. So I, I looked up the numbers in preparing for this. So I think I contacted about 300 people Those were all people that I have personal relationships with. I mean, some, you know, just acquaintances, but, but people that I actually knew, not professional investors, people that are either just entrepreneurs or people who worked in tech or, you know, people that maybe did some investing on the side, 300 people just got emailed or texted or Facebook messaged or whatever by me saying, here's what I'm doing. Do you want to invest? 
right? And you wound up raising 320000 on a safe, right? So the audience knows, you know, you emailed me and you and I actually had a, an email thread about Ropig. Mm-hmm. And the only reason, the only reason that I didn't invest was because, well, actually, I guess there were two. One is your, your pre-revenue. And I don't, in general, tend to invest in pre-revenue companies just because there's so much risk. Um, but the second was that it was such a new space and that I, I had confidence in you as the founder that you were going to execute on it. But my gut was that it was going to be this very long, very arduous, very painful journey and that you would get there eventually. But it, it just seemed you, you didn't have an audience in the space. I didn't feel like you had reach and stuff. And that's what you and I talked about in the email. Was that on your radar? I mean, obviously, I must not have been the only person to mention that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because a big advantage that I had in Meet Edgar is it's a social media tool. I had already been in the social media space for years prior doing courses and consulting. I'd already built an audience in that space. So with Ropig, the tool was, you know, systems admin people, developers. It's it's not me. I'm not a developer. I'm not in that space. I'm not in that world. So not only do I have no list built up, but I can't speak at those conferences. I can't go to those meetups. It's just, it's, it's not my thing. It's not my language. So I do think that a big reason why Ropig didn't work out is I just, I underestimated how much value... I had and continue to give in Ed, to Edgar in that way. Because with Ropig, I just thought like, okay, I know I can't do that, but I can just hire people who can, which is totally a viable strategy. And a lot of people do that. But I did not raise enough money to do that. It was the problem. The problem was like the strategy that I had in my head was really a much better fit for a company that was going to raise a lot of money because even though I was raising this, this 300 K, it ended up being 320 K. I did not want to raise more money after that. I did not want to do big fundraising. I did not want to do VC. I didn't, I didn't want to do any of it. And in retrospect, like the game plan that Ropig needed to succeed, was just not a match for only having a small amount of fundraising. Yeah, you didn't want to do the Series A shuffle and, and you kind of just wanted to do this single seed round like several, I think, you know, Colin from Customer.io calls it fund strapping, right? Is raising this single round to hit escape velocity. And that makes sense. That that actually fits my, you know, my perspective of, of who you are as an entrepreneur. Like you are much more a bootstrapper than, a, than someone who raises, but raising that one round really these days is not... It's not against bootstrapping ethos anymore. You know what I mean? It's like in some spaces, like like this one, the alert management tool. So it like com- it competed with uh, PagerDuty. Is that Pager a good com- yeah? That yes. a good comparison? So people have have their idea. I mean, it's a very crowded space with a lot of funding in it, right? And it's competitive. So you're going to need some superpower to get in there. And so you were saying that you didn't raise enough money to hire someone to be an influencer. Is that is that what you were saying? Yeah, I mean that's part of it. And I just I just didn't raise enough money. <laughs> for any of it. So, you know, you mentioned that it's a very competitive space, but it's also just, it was a really expensive tool to build. So my, my husband, Chris is a developer. He's the co-founder of the tool. He also, for me, Edgar built the initial version of the tool and he could not build alone Ropic. Like it's just it's just, it's not a tool that you can just like sit down and in your free time and some weekends build. So we had already spent, we decided to invest our own money, $500,000 of our own money into this project. So by the time we raised the money, we already had a full-time team of developers just to get the initial 
product out because it's alert management. You can't be like, it'll probably work sometimes. Like we'll get most, most of your alerts, you know, like it's just not the type of thing that you can have sort of like shoddy, half baked. Also a lot of the advice of like, just ship people a minimum version. It's like, well, no one really wants a minimum, like to manage some of their alert. It just doesn't make sense. You know, you can't really just like test out some sort of halfway done thing or like all the advice of like, oh, pretend you have software, but then just do it yourself behind the scenes. Like you can't do that with this. Yeah. This breaks a lot of those rules. Yeah. This breaks a lot of those rules. And it's one of the reasons is because it is so competitive and the market is fair, somewhat mature, I would say. And so an MVP in this market is very, very different than an MVP in, you know, whatever the VR space or something that's, you know, still a nascent market. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think I that was another thing that I underestimated because when we launched Meet Edgar, we had funded competitors. You know, Hootsuite has raised a ton of money and we've still been able to be a successful company in spite of that. So I think I was kind of like, oh, funded competitors. Like, I, <laughs> I can do that. You know, I've, I've done that before. But Meet Edgar is also something that Chris could build on his own. You know, the first version he just built on his own in, in his spare time. And if we don't send out a tweet, it's okay. No one, no one's business falls apart. You know, it's just, it's just a very different space. So, I mean, basically what happened is once we raised that 320K, so we raised the money in January, we had our launch in March and the launch was just like a dud. (laughs) Just like we put it out there, we opened the doors and not a single person paid for it. Like some people had free accounts, but not a single human paid for it, which is a very bad outcome (laughs) in case anyone's unclear, not what you're looking for, for your launch. And so that was like, we're going to have to make some big changes if this is going to work. How does that feel as a, you're a successful founder, you're a serial entrepreneur, you built up uh, a wildly successful um, online training course and business around training folks in social media. Then you launched Meet Edgar to one of the, you know, one of the bootstrapping Cinderella stories, in my opinion, of getting to seven figures in a year. And then you launched this third app because like, you, it's like, at this point, you know what you're doing, right? That, right. That, so <laughs> how, how did that feel when the, when it just went completely sideways? I was just like, we picked the wrong market because that was something that we had been worried about when we were developing it. So basically the whole idea with Ropig is that there are a lot of smaller companies like us with Meet Edgar where like we were using pager duty, but it really wasn't designed for us at all. And then we saw a lot of other smaller companies in our space that just didn't use an alert management tool and just sort of like dug through the logs manually when they had time. So we're like, okay, we're going to target, like we even, if you look at the Ropig website or looked, I don't know if it'll be up when people are listening to this, but we had a whole page that the whole point with a page, it said on the headline, why would I need an alert management tool? And so I look at that now and I'm like, duh, the fact that I had to build that page should have been a really bad sign, right? Like, why would I need an alert management tool? Like, why are you looking at this website? You're clearly not going to buy anything. So, so 
I think it's possible. Obviously, there's companies that have done it to introduce people to like a new idea and a new concept. But again, maybe not a fit with bootstrapping. Like a fit with bootstrapping is you're already using a competitor. Let me show you how we do something different that makes us a much better fit for you. I think this hurdle of like, you don't think you need an alert management tool, but we're going to show you why we do. It was a failed experiment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's the thing with with mature markets. Well, you know that PagerDuty wants to expand that market, so they're probably already putting a bunch of time, effort, and money into trying to convert everyone they can away from digging through logs. And I'm just imagining there is only so much blood that you can squeeze out of that turnip, you know, that like they've already done most of that probably. And again, it's just expensive. Like maybe, you know, because PagerDuty is geared more towards enterprise. So we're like, maybe there's a spot in the market here. And maybe if we had spent another year going to every meetup around the world and tweaking our product to get better product market fit, maybe it could have happened. But I just sort of saw it was like that small fundraise combined with the dud launch was like, this, this is bad (laughs) because all of our financial projections were like, we're going to be at a million revenue in the first year (laughs) because that's what happened with Edgar. (laughs) Like, isn't that how all businesses go? And it turns out no. So you launched in March, you basically stopped operations a couple months later. So it was a very quick decision that this wasn't going to work. Yeah. And so in May, we hadn't, we hadn't told our investors we were shutting down. So basically what happened is we launched, you know, it went badly. It kept, I mean, it kept going badly, obviously, because no major changes happened. And so in, so again, this coincides with my maternity leave because my daughter was born in June and my co-founder was my husband, also a parent to this baby who's going to be born. It is not like a time where we're like, we're going to work 80 hour weeks now to try to make this work by ourselves. So I'm like, all the factors in this equation do not add up. I'm just going to shut the machine down so that we can take our expenses to zero. So like I said, we had full-time developers on the team. Some of them we were able to like move back to Edgar. You know, it's funny. You asked me if I'd done layoffs and I was like, no, but I <laughs> actually I had. <laughs> actually I had, but I just, it's funny because I didn't even think of that. That was a layoff. It was only one person because the other two we could move over to Edgar. But anyway, so I actually had done a layoff before. So yeah, so we let the development team go. We we shut down the tool so that so we kicked off our free users so that our costs for running the tool would go to zero. And I'm just like, I'm gonna like take a few months maternity leave and then I'm just gonna like figure out what to do when I come back. You know, like are we I don't know. I don't know what to do with this. I know that we need to stop hemorrhaging money for our no customers and no time to work on this. So I'm just going to stop it. So 2018 was a, not a good year for you. Then. No. <laughs> I could agree. Well, I mean, it was great because you had, you had a baby, but all the other stuff, it sounds right. like, oh, good Lord. So then you go on maternity leave. You must've been thinking about it for solid for two months, stressing about it, I imagine. I mean, was it pretty stressful? It was, it was stressful because, and this is what's interesting about the fundraising. Like if I hadn't raised money, it would not have been stressful. For me, that was the element that made it stressful because I was so worried about letting other people down. 
you know? Obviously, when you raise money, you paint this picture of how successful it's going to be, which obviously you believe. And especially because all my investors were friends, I had this dream of like writing huge checks to my friends. I mean, what's, you know, what would be more fun than that? So if I didn't have investors, I think I would have just been like, this sucks. I don't want to do this. (laughs) I'm shutting it down. And it just, after the launch didn't go well, I realized that I just did not have the same passion for this product. Like this product was much more, okay, we see a problem and we think we have a solution for that problem. Like maybe there could be a business here, but not like our audience with Meet Edgar, I love entrepreneurs. I love entrepreneurs. That is my world. I love listening to podcasts like this one that talk about entrepreneurs, right? I love reading books about it. And that's our customers that we support and meet Edgar so I can live in that world. I have no interest in living in, you know, systems administration world. It's just like really not interesting to me at all. So if I didn't have the investors, I think I would have just been like, yeah, this is, this is really not for me. But because I had the investors, I felt this pressure. Like I, how can I make this work? I need to make this work. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Had you, had you burned through all of the investor money by that point or did no. you still have some left? Okay. So that was the good news. We had not burned through much of it at all because we didn't incur, you know, the launch, we didn't do like paid advertising or anything. So the only cost that we had occurred was just paying the developers for that few, few more months. So when we, when we put the brakes on everything, we had 75% of the investor money still in the bank. I mean, how did you finally make the decision? You know, obviously you you shut it down. I'm assuming you returned the money to investors. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, like what's going to happen with this? How, how can I make it work? And any, any path to make it work clearly involved raising more money, a lot more money. Like at this point, you know, you can't just keep hitting people up for another like 200 or 300 K. I would really need to do institutional fundraising. And I had got a glimpse of institutional fundraising doing my, my friends and family fundraising. By the way, not family in my case, just friends. I don't have any family with money, so friends and friends fundraising. <laughs> there was no rich uncle, unfortunately, I wish. So I had you know, met with some institutional people in Austin and San Francisco, had phone calls. And I just like... I think as bootstrappers, we have this really negative view of institutional money. And it was all true (laughs) from the conversations that I had. Like every horrible stereotype I had about traditional VC was just was just a hundred percent confirmed, you know, and they would ask me like how big the business is going to be. They were not interested unless it was like an Uber size situation. They were not interested in anything less than like, I'm going to keep raising money as much money as I possibly can as fast as I possibly can. That was the path that they wanted to see. Not interested in profitability, just interested in growth. So because I had seen that little glimpse, I was like, nah, like, no, this is not for me. No, no way. And the thing that finally convinced me to make the decision, I was talking to a friend of mine and I'm like, I really, I really think it's going to be really hard and I don't know what to do, but I have this duty to my investors. And he said, you have a fiduciary responsibility 
to your investors to return as much of their money as possible. He said, knowing everything that you know, if you were an investor, would you ask to just get your money back and get out or would you want to continue? And I said, if I were an investor and I knew everything that I know from the inside, I would want to get out. I would say, thanks, give me my money back. I don't think this is going to work. I'm out. And that conversation just absolved me of all of my guilt and stress because it made me see that shutting down was being responsible to my investors. Yeah, it's uh, crazy how a conversation or, or a single question can get your whole mindset to shift and make a decision that it sounds like you knew the right answer to, but you were burdened by this this other piece. And it was the fact that they, you felt an obligation to your investors. And suddenly it was like, wait, the obligation actually goes better. You actually serve them better if you make the decision you already know you want to make. Right. That's fascinating. Right. It's a good friend. That's a good friend to keep around. He's a keeper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So yeah, it was November. I looked up the timeline. It was, it was November 9th that I sent the email to investors saying, you know, I've decided to shut down and here's why, and you will be getting 75% of your money back. So that felt, that felt really good too. How did the investors react? Were they supportive? I mean, these are folks that you knew, they were at least acquaintances or friends. Was there any negative reaction to it? Or was it mostly like, sorry, this sucks. Thanks for the money back type thing. It was very positive. It was very positive. You know, people said it's very unusual to be able to make this call and return the money. You know, I really respect you doing that instead of just trying to burn through every last dollar. So people were very kind and and very supportive, which I'm I'm very grateful for. I've found that with with angels, especially angels, well, so angels are investing their own money, right? And they just tend to be more relaxed. Like I've tended to be, I've done about a dozen angel investments and I'm, I'm nowhere near like the VC level institutional money manager, you know, in terms of how, how they view this stuff. And I think that's, I think it's, it's an interesting callback, you know, cause you were, you were saying like the VC stuff you had heard about is true, right? All the, the stereotypes you'd heard are true. That's why I believe that that this world needs funds like Indie.VC and Tiny Seed, you know, to 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 be that in between where we can write checks. Now, maybe we couldn't have written a check as much as you needed. You know, you really did need a, a legit Series A to compete in the space. But but that there is an option for people to take money where it doesn't come with that same stereotypical stigma of no, you have to be a hundred million dollars, and how are you going to get there in three years or less, and how are you going to hire twenty people a month, and how are you going to you know, all this stuff. Like you and I both know that we can build businesses without those kind of eye rollable constraints that, that, that venture capitalists are going to put on it. Yeah. And all, you know, all the investors knew what they were in for. I hadn't tricked anyone into thinking this was a, a get rich quick scheme. Everyone could afford to lose the money. So it was just one of those lessons of always how important it is to be in integrity. You know, I felt like I had been in integrity throughout the whole process and was still in integrity at the end of the process. So Laura, we've, you know, we've covered quite a bit in this interview and and I really appreciate you kind of taking this walk down bad memory lane of of 2018. (laughs) But I mean, the positive end of the story is that Edgar's doing really well after all, you know, all the, the tumult that you went through with it. Yeah, you know, we are growing again. We've had we've had growth every month in 2019, which which has felt amazing and is just 
so good for the team after, after having such a hard time for, for such a long time. And I mentioned that it has forced us to be more innovative. And I feel like it's made me a new entrepreneur because I had never been through anything really hard before as an entrepreneur in retrospect, you know, like I thought I had, I had little ups and downs, but I had never had, okay, we have to do layoffs and we've lost a huge amount of our customer base and I'm shutting down this other company (laughs) all happening at the same time. And it's true that it does, it makes you a lot smarter because you no longer just have this false assumption that everything will always go up. You know that if you're in this for the long haul, you'll have ups and downs and that's okay. And that it's not a disaster when something goes wrong. And it doesn't mean that nothing will ever get better and that your company is over forever. And I'm really glad that I've had this experience of, of proving that to myself. Yeah, you you took several things that look like absolute roadblocks and turned them into into speed bumps that you drove over, you know, and like to come out the other side of that successful with a company that's, you know, continuing to grow after all these years is uh, it's quite a testament to your, I think, your chops as a founder. Thank you. Well, we're going to wrap up today. If folks want to catch up with you, I see your website at lauraroder.com. And obviously, if folks are looking to manage their social media, they can go to meetedgar.com to see what you're up to there. Yes. Oh, and I'll do a Meet Edgar plug. They can enter the coupon code PODCAST in all caps and get a free month of Edgar. Sounds great. Well, thanks again, Laura. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Laura Roeder. I was truly impressed and impacted by her ability to turn roadblocks into speed bumps and just her fortitude and perseverance in getting through hard things. These are hard things that we face as founders, and she really stepped up and made it happen and kept her company alive and made hard decisions about about the next company. So really impressive. And with that, we'll wrap for the day. If you have a question for the show, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.